An L.A. kid transplanted in New York City, Steve Kahn is considered one of the most prolific jazz guitarists on the planet. For nearly 40 years, Kahn has recorded more than 20 albums and has shared his talent with artists such as Steely Dan, Larry Coryell, and the Brecker Brothers Band. Inspired by legends such as Wes Montgomery and Pat Martino, Kahn's expansive body of work envelops the world of jazz that has surrounded him since he picked up the instrument. Not only has Kahn delivered amazing music over the course of his career, he has also authored several books. Steely Dan's Donald Fagan once wrote about Steve, saying, The kid from Westwood, after years of study and sacrifice, can now do just about everything he wants with an electric guitar. Some people think they know all there is to know about Steve Kahn, but don't let anyone tell you he's just another guitar player. Inside Music Cast welcomes Steve Kahn. Hey, Steve, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Rick. It's my pleasure to be with you guys. One of the first things we noticed when we were, you know, brushing up on, on you is on your website, you mentioned that as a teenager, you were a terrible drummer. <laughs> <laughs> and I, we were wondering, did you discover that on your own or did someone else have to actually tell you that? <laughs> Usually, when you approach something, you know, in kind of a, uh, I don't know if this is okay to say on the radio, in kind of a, a half-assed way, uh, you know, the results you get uh, are exactly what you would expect. And, um, <laughs> at that time, and we're, you know, we're talking about sort of the, the early part of the 60s, part of it is like sort of pre-Beatles. And, right. uh, you know, my friends were all getting interested in the guitar, and, and a lot of my friends had guitar. And, and the drums, I didn't want to be left out. So mm-hmm. I, I just thought, well, the, the drums look like the easiest thing to do, so I'll, I'll do that. And my father you know, was willing to help me out. So he, you know, got together some pieces of a kit. And, but he says, but you have to study. And so, you know, I went for my first um, drum lesson. And I go in this room, and all that's in the there's no drums in there. There's just a little uh, black rubber pad sitting on a, <laughs> on a stand. Yep. And I, the teacher walks in, and, and I said, well, what's this? Where's the drums? And he said, there won't be any drums for a while. He said, everything comes from this. Right, right. He said, everything. You know, and I, I never understood that, and I, I thought he was a bad teacher, all this stuff. And I, I ended up, I don't know how this happened, but one of the bands that I, my friends and I, we just used to idolize was um, the Chantays, which they were famous for this surfing instrumental called Pipeline. Yeah. But they were really a lot more than that. They were a much better band. They did a lot of things. You know, played lots of all the, the Freddie King uh, blues instrumentals, <laughs> a lot yeah. of really neat stuff they did. So we kind of followed them around, and some, I don't know, they, they found out I played drums, and, and when their drummer quit, because they liked me so much as a person, they said, well, you know, why don't you join the band? And so the next thing I know, I'm playing in a, a real <laughs> professional band and touring, and I think to me, you know, my shortcomings were so obvious that, uh, you know, it was pathetic because their drummer was actually really talented. Yeah. And, I mean, in terms of um, a command of the snare drum. And yeah. sort of the final straw for me with the drums was, we we'd gone about as far as we could with with the band, including uh, changing the band's name to get away from the the surfing image <laughs> and, the, and that one big huge hit that they had had. Right. And one day, after two failed attempts at a single for Reprise Records, the uh, first one was produced by Lee Hazelwood, who was famous for the the tune "These Boots Are Made for Walking" and right. uh, and other things. And the second one, you're never going to believe this, but. 
we we actually recorded uh, two songs by Dr. John. Did you really? Okay. Yeah, okay. And, <laughs> and, and this is this is before he was Dr. John. He was just Mac Revenek then, uh-huh. and he was like a songwriter on staff. And it, it was, you know, looking back at it, it was just the most surreal experience to have, you know, Dr. John in my mother's house. Holy um, <laughs> So, but anyway, after those things failed, I, I'm going to UCLA, and I'm, I'm sitting in my room, and there's this nice set of Ludwig drums, and and I I started to, to listen to jazz. And I, I went and bought West Montgomery's record called Moving West. Yeah, right. Uh, partially by mistake, because I, w- I was really just listening to blues for the most part. Mm-hmm. And Wes had this guitar, and some of these B.B. King records I had, he had, on, on the photos, he didn't have a sort of usual 335. He was p- actually pictured with an ES-175 Gibson. Okay. I, and... Uh, for anybody who would say, no, that's not possible, Steve. Well, I have the LP <laughs> covers to prove it. Wow. And so Wes's guitar looked like B.B. King's guitar. So I said to myself, oh, well, he must sound like that. Right. Yeah, right. And then I put on the record, and Caravan comes on at this yeah. you know, ridiculous clickety-split <laughs> tempo and uh-huh. big band. And I'm listening to Grady Tate playing drums. Mm-hmm. And I remember I just got so sad. I mean, I almost felt like crying. You know, I, I just said, like... <laughs> I'm never in my life. I can't do that, you know. And I, and I said, like, who's going to want to? Who's going to hire me to play drums in their band? I I can't play, even though I could play sort of. Right. But, sure. Um, so that was that was it. I mean, that was the end. And then I went through a period where uh, I really wasn't playing much music at all. I I, I owned a you know guitar because I felt like I should know something. Yeah. And you know, the next thing I knew. I uh, had changed my major from psychology to music, and uh-huh. <laughs> uh, the, the journey began. But I was, I mean, I felt this way pretty much my whole musical life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was 19 then, yeah. and I've always felt behind everybody else. And, and I still feel that way. Well, you know, that's, that's interesting because I was going to mention, you know, a lot of the guitarists that we've, we've interviewed here, you know, um, they all started out, you know, playing the guitar when they were five or, you know, they have stories that they've, you know, started when yeah, they were right. five years old, 10 years old, 12, you know, and, and starting, you know, I was just thinking about you starting out at the age of 19 on guitar, you know, ultimately, obviously you decided that drums weren't your thing and, and you found the guitar in some capacity. How were you driven to the guitar? I mean, what were you listening to that, that made you want to adapt to that? Right. Well, um, as I said, I mean, you know, prior to this change, I mean, I'd been, you know, listening to the blues was really my, what I loved the most. I yeah. mean, so I, I had been listening to, uh, you know, the Three Kings. I'd been listening to B.B. Mm-hmm. King, right. Freddie King, and Albert King. <laughs> and um, so that, and of course, mi- mixed in with all I ever listened to was R&B. I mean, I never, uh, it's really funny when the Beatles hit. I mean, I, I wasn't that into it initially because hmm. uh, you know, I just, like the blues so much. So, like I said, I'd been playing the drums, and I, but I didn't feel like a musician. And that was my fault, not the fault of the drums. Right. And so I felt like if I had a guitar and, and learned some stuff about harmony and chords and stuff, that I'd, I'd feel more like a musician. And um, so that's kind, that's kind of where it, it started. I mean, uh, the other part of the story is I'd, I'd played piano mostly classical from when i was five to 12 and okay and the, you know i was forced to do that by my father because <laughs> uh, 
part of being my father's son was, you know, I had to be all the things that he couldn't have been in his life, including, yeah. uh, you know, the musician he couldn't he couldn't be. Right. And uh, I, I guess if I it, if I'd become a uh, a lawyer like he wanted me to, then I would have completed his dream. <laughs> but needless to say, thank goodness I didn't do that. Yeah. You so that's that's kind of how it happened. But the the guys in the Chantays actually played me uh, the first West Montgomery I ever heard. Okay. And uh, the first record they ever played me was uh, his record Boss Guitar. But when I heard it the first time, it just sounded, you know, so complex and so, mm-hmm. I don't know, cerebral yeah. that I didn't get it. And mm-hmm. later, uh, I got it. And uh, that became my passion. And I, I, sure. just, I just desperately wanted to, to learn how to do that. Yeah. You studied with uh, Ron Anthony. How long did you uh, take lessons from him? Probably not too long. I mean, um, it's funny, you know, Ron's one of those, he's one of my favorite people in, in the world, and he's a wonderful, and he's a fantastic player. I mean, he's, he comes from that era of, of, of those kind of guitar players who all had, you know, beautiful uh, technique on the instrument. Um, Technicians, yeah. Yeah, he's just fantastic. You know, the, the, the standard at that time in terms of technical mastery of the guitar mm-hmm. Uh, if you talk to the guys from that era, you know, it was Johnny Smith, and everybody, you know, said that's how. If you could play the guitar perfectly, you know, you'd you'd play like Johnny Smith. Right, so yeah. mm-hmm. Ron had that kind of technique; he could just play like that. Yeah. And but the things I, I learned from Ron were more about life than than about the guitar. For some reason, hmm. I mean, some people are great players, and they're not necessarily the greatest teachers. And then, you know, other people don't play so great, but they make great teachers for some reason. Yeah, isn't that weird? And um, so this is my favorite story about uh, Ron's life at the time. Mm -hmm. He lived in the valley, and I lived on the other side of the hill in in Los Angeles, closer to UCLA. So I'd drive over the hill, and I'd get to his apartment complex. And um, this is almost like the first lesson. So I, I go there, and I sheepishly, you know, knock on the door, and nobody answers. And I knock again, and still no answer. I try a third time, and I hear some kind of rustling in there. And knock one more time, and next thing I know, a woman comes to the door in a sheet. <laughs> and, uh, and she's kind of sl- sleepy. This is like, you know, two in the afternoon or something. And, okay. and so she says, um, yes, can I help you? And I said, uh, hi, I'm, my name's Steve. I'm here for a guitar lesson with Ron. And then she leans over her shoulder and goes, uh, Ron, honey, there's a Steve here to see. And then I hear Ron's voice go, Oh, jeez, oh, God, I forgot. Oh, God. <laughs> and so then Ron wraps himself in, in what's left of another sheet. And he says, Stevie, Stevie, come on, come on in, come on. I'm so sorry. And, you know, I don't know what happened at the time. I, I just forgot. He says, Let me just take a fast shower. And, and so now, here I am, this, you know, whatever, 19, 20-year-old kid. And I was, a, you know, very immature 19, 20-year-old kid. I mean, there were, you know, today's 19 or 20-year-old knows a thousand more things than I knew. So now the next thing I know, I'm sitting at the, you know, the whatever, dinner table, breakfast table with this woman, uh, naked woman wrapped in a sheet. And, and so I remember after it was all over, getting in my car, I was saying to myself, Gosh, is, is that what my life is going to be like when I'm a grown-up? <laughs> so that's uh, that's my 
that's my lasting memory of of Ron. <laughs> Even though, I mean, obviously we became much better friends, and I, you know, I just love him. He's a great person. But that was, you know, sometimes that first impression of somebody in their life uh, stays with you forever. That didn't happen every lesson, did it? <laughs> uh, believe it or not, I, I think it happened one more time with somebody different. But, um, not every no, not every lesson. That's a good story. <laughs> Then you went. Um, Shortly after, you know, you decided to look at your sights, change your sights to New York City. Were you alone when you left uh, for the city? Uh, very much so. Really? I, mm -hmm. This also happened kind of as a, a really glorious uh, accident. And it was kind of, uh, part of it, in part it happened, you know, through, through my father, but not in some uh, way where he pulled some strings or something. Yeah. He, uh, one of his best friends in those years was a uh, a percussionist. His name was Stanley Krell, and Stanley was you know known mostly for playing in the pits of Broadway shows and doing commercials. And, uh -huh. uh, you know, working musician in New York, and one of Stanley's students was uh, ended up being the great vibraphonist David Friedman. Wow! And so David Friedman and his bass player John Miller were playing with uh, Tim Buckley, the famous uh, you know folk uh, rock singer, right, or right. I, I don't know what categories you put sure. it in but yeah and you know, tim was kind of experimenting with you know sort of jazz sounds and colors and his group at the time had you know vibes um acoustic bass and and uh, percussion and so they were coming to la to play at the troubadour and my father had given david my phone he said why don't you call my son he's a he's a jazz guitar player so i went to see them and i thought it was really great and um And David said, well, why don't you come down? Our instruments are set up at the studio, and uh, come down early and we'll jam And uh, before we have to work with Tim. Oh, cool. So I went down there, and we jammed, and it seemed like, you know, we knew the same bag of material. We both, uh, you know, were all fan fans of what Gary Burton was doing at the time, which right. was the great quartet with Larry Coryell. Mm -hmm. And so the next summer, which I believe was the summer of 69, David invited me to come to New York. They had a summer gig up at uh, the famous Music Inn, uh, which in those days there had been a, lot of, a few famous records recorded at the Music Inn mm -hmm. by the Modern mm -hmm. Jazz Quartet and uh, maybe Jimmy Jufi, I, I forget. But yeah. And um, so we played the whole summer, and, and you know, it, was a, it was a fantastic summer. I mean, mostly I learned how much I needed to know, which I, is also, I suppose, a running theme in my musical life, too. And uh, it was then that I decided I was going to go back, finish my last quarter at UCLA, and move to New York, because if I was ever going to see if I could be the kind of musician I, I wanted to be, you know, have the kind of musicianship David had and John had, I, I had to be in New York. Mm -hmm. right, and right. so I moved. And I, you know, even when I moved, I, I knew two people here. Right. I knew David and John. And I was scared to death. I mean, I was just <laughs> a kid from, from sure. L.A. LA you know, life in L.A. Is, is just so different than New York. Right. And, well, that, um, that was actually that's part of my next question, you know, being, being an L.A. kid and then transplanting yourself, you know, in New York. First of all, tell me about the educational aspect you received by just simply – immersing yourself into the musical culture there. I mean, right, were sure. there discernible musical differences that you saw, you know, between what was happening in L.A. and, and what was going on there in New York? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the people always, uh, there, there's always this, uh, I don't know, it's been going on 
since the beginning of time, you know, this <laughs> sort of uh, what's, you know, what's better, uh, L.A. Right, or New York, right, are the musicians right. better, is the music better? And I think, you know, the the the, the big difference is the, the level of musicianship, I don't think is ever the issue. They're, they're great musicians everywhere. Right. But I think what I've seen, and it, it, I think it still holds true, is that uh, the pace of life in New York is just so different. It's right. so fast. Mm-hmm. And when I first got here, I remember there used to be this commercial that was on TV. It was supposed to be promoting New York. And it, it's a, it was a scene of you know, sort of flying in over, over Manhattan on a helicopter. And you hear the voice of, of Ben Gazzara, who has this you know, great, deep, sure, rich right. voice. Uh, and... And he comes on, and, and what he said was, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm quoting it reasonably close, and he said, you know, in this deep voice, he says, New York, site of man's greatest achievements and his most dismal failures. <laughs> and, and that's really, you know, what New York is. It, it's, right. it's the best of things. Right. It's the worst of things. I mean, it, it's, it's yeah. in, in terms of art and stuff, it's, it's in many ways the best, you know, humanity can produce. And then there are other things here that are just, the absolute worst things about right. civilization. So, you know, there's nothing in between here. Everything <laughs> is, is yeah. extremes. And yeah. so you're pushed here. If you can sort of stomach it, uh, you're pushed to, to at least find, you know, how, how good can I be? Right. And I think the ir- ironic thing that I guess I've learned being here is that um, sometimes it's, it's not so much how good you are or not, uh, if you have a, a, th- a thick skin and you can take all the times you're going to hear you're not good enough or you stink or you're yeah. fired, uh, whatever it is, and still be here, you can you can manage some kind of life for yourself. Because I've seen guys on many, many instruments come here who had a thousand times more talent than, than I'll ever have, mm-hmm. and they're gone. Yeah, And it's just because life here, it, it's really hard. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's different. L.A., uh, you know, it's much more spread out. It's a car culture. I almost don't even know anybody here, you know, (laughs) who lived in the city who has a car. You know, having a car in the city, that's for rich people. Exactly. I mean, you know, to have a parking garage uh, costs (laughs) as much as some people's apartments. Exactly. Right. (laughs) During the early years while you were there. Tell me about the club scene. And, my, and this may be a wrong assumption, but most young guys that are in and uh, they're starting to knock on doors and want to jam with guys at clubs, was that uh, basically how you uh, connected with other musicians? Well, I mean, I think, you know, when you look back at things, you know, you don't, you don't choose who you're going to come here uh, at the same time with. I mean, if, if somebody said to me, well, you're going to be coming here at the same time as the Brecker Brothers and yeah, Dave right. Liebman and Don Grolnick and Steve Gadd and yeah. Will Lee. I mean, I could you know list hundreds of John Abercrombie, all these fantastic players. If somebody had told me that at the time, I would have said, "Well, who are those guys?" I exactly. Mean, uh, but then you look back on it years later and you go, "Oh my God!" You know, all of us got here at the same time mm-hmm. with the same dreams, the same notebooks of tunes, and <laughs> it, it's it's really remarkable. So. We all just happen to be here, and, and somehow, you know, when you're, you're trying to find players of a like mind and a like sensibility to play with, uh, you know, you, yeah. you just drift together. Sure. And mm-hmm. 
um, that's that's kind of what happened. And, and you know, the guys you you feel close to and and you know, seem to be uh, in tune with, uh, you start to play together. So right. um, it, it was in those years. I mean, as you can imagine, I mean, you can't like be jamming in somebody's apartment because uh, <laughs> you know the drums will. Uh, you know, that'll be the end of it. You, you know, the person will get evicted. So uh, all the serious musicians uh, were living in lofts, and these are the years of, of the loft scenes. Okay. And so, because in a loft, which is really just you know an industrial space, sure, right, raw right. space, and you know people put in a bathroom, make some sort of a makeshift kitchen, and uh, there you go. And and guys would just like play all night, all day, all night, and. Um, that's what that's what it was like. So that's where all the jamming was taking place, and and guys could do that. I mean, I I think things are not like that anymore. The the, the loft scene is kind of mm-hmm. gone, and it, it you know it, it just mutates and changes. Yeah. Um, but like for example, in those years, uh, all the the big clubs still existed. I mean, now of all those famous clubs, pretty much only you know the Village Vanguard is still standing. You know, the rest have gone or changed or something. And uh, but like in those years, you could actually go to what was the top of the gate, the top of the village gate, uh-huh. and see Bill Evans for nothing. Yeah. I mean, you could like nurse a, a Coca Cola for you know three sets. I mean, it was on. I mean, I'm I'm serious. There was no cover charge. Yeah, nothing. right. So I mean, that just shows you the difference. Right. In in the times, that was you know 1970. Mm-hmm. So that that's you know that's that's kind of what it was like. There weren't. Uh, see, there, there used to be a thing here called a, a cabaret license, and that what a cabaret license meant was that a club or a restaurant can have drums or they can't. If they had a cabaret license, they could have drums. If they didn't, you know, you'd have to play, like, say, duo, guitar and bass, or wow. piano and piano wow. and bass. <laughs> and so there were a lot of, you know, people would call them clubs, but they were really, you know, sort of drummerless clubs. <laughs> wow. Now in New York, you have all these little places. And I, I, to tell you the truth, I don't know how the laws have changed. I don't like, like, uh, I don't know if, say, like, the famous 55 bar right. still has to have a cabaret license in order to have drums in there. Wow, I, honestly, that's interesting. I don't know. That's interesting. Uh, some of it, you know, it, it has to do with neighborhood ordinances. Um, right. You know, like, because, you know, people don't want to be hearing drums after 10 at night. They want <laughs> right. to go to sleep. Right. So that's part of it, too. Well, I want to jump ahead and talk a little bit about your discography, which, you know, is is amazingly endless. Uh, you know, you signed your first deal with uh, Columbia Records and, and recorded a series of four records, I think, Tightrope, a Live Mother for You, The Blue Man, and uh, Arrows. And can you tell us, I'm just curious to know how, you know, you, you initially got signed with, with mm-hmm. Columbia. And mm-hmm. was it there someone who heard you? And how did they actually hear you and, and get you signed? When one looks at, my, my, if you call it my big break, mm-hmm. uh, I owe everything to both uh, Bobby Columbia and, and Bob James. Yeah, and right. uh, had that not happened, um, who knows what would happen? Right. I mean, uh, I mean, the, the the strange thing about it is, it's like this is sort of the naive part. I mean, when I got signed to Columbia, I, I was just you know happier than a little kid can possibly be and and I actually thought uh that uh this meant that I was going to be have a career like Miles Davis you know and just I'm going to you know, okay I'm signed by Columbia I'm going to be there for the rest of my life and you know you just don't realize that the real world doesn't work like that 
And yeah. so, you know, three years later, uh, when the fusion movement had sort of uh, run itself into the ground and Columbia, who had signed every artist under the sun, right. decided, like, uh, we got to get rid of <laughs> these guys. <laughs> and And so what they did was, they made a series of records, you know, I think, you know, called the best of by everybody. And then they dropped everybody. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a funny, I mean, you can see at my discography page at the website, you see the best of, right. and, um, it's, it looks like kind of this brown paper bag look with, you know, some graphics on it <laughs> and a photo. And they did one of everybody, you know, best of Billy Cobham, best of Tom Scott, best of yeah, Maynard right. Ferguson, best, right. of Steve, you know, best of the, you know, and they dropped everybody, mm-hmm. and they they you know streamlined the the label and got down to basically you know it becomes a numbers game, you know who's right. who's selling and who's not, yep. right. and what you know what happened was is uh, my first record did the best of the three, and then as as I progressively sort of got more control over the kinds of records I wanted to make, uh, the sales went down. So, uh, unfortunately, that that was it for me. And it was a really, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very sad moment. I mean, you know, one minute you, like, you have a career. You feel like you're headed in this direction. And the next sure, minute, uh, you're nothing. You're just, you're out on the street. And uh, that was a really tough time. That, that happened in, in 1980. Wow. And in truth, that's the last real record contract I ever had. Oh, really? Wow, interesting. Yeah, everything since then, uh, a huge chunk of my recorded catalog uh, would have never happened if it wasn't for the great relationships I I had with the the good people of Japan. Mm -hmm. And the other part is I've paid for seven of my recordings now out of my own pocket. Wow. So... uh, it's. I mean, you look at the labels that the records appear on, and somebody says, oh, wow, look, you've been here, you've been there. I mean, I've had a record out under my own name on almost every major label, mm-hmm. but in most cases, it's just they were licensed to that label. Yeah. A label picked it up, and um, in that sense, I was lucky again, but I had no contract with them. Yeah. So it looks like one thing, but it's that's not the truth. Right. Well, I think in 1981, uh, you formed a quintet called Eyewitness, and that was along with uh, Steve Jordan, Anthony Jackson, and uh, Manolo uh, Bedrena. And uh, right. tell us tell us a little bit about how that project came yeah, about. Really. Well, it's a quartet. It's a quartet. <laughs> it's yes. Four guys. Oh, I'm sorry. Quartet, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> unless unless there's a, mis- a mystery guy in there. One guy was schizophrenic. Was, oh, was Pete, <laughs> I think it was Pete Best. Yeah, yeah, right. Some, somebody or the, or the, or the mystery guy from uh, Final Tap is in there. Um, Math wasn't one of my strong suits, by exactly. the way. <laughs> Five, four was a different. <laughs> um, well, that, again, uh, was the most, uh, and th- in this case, when I say the most, I, I re- actually really mean it, that, w- that was the most musical, uh, musically glorious accident that ever happened to me. Um <laughs> The way that came about is um, in in eighty, I had recorded um, this solo acoustic guitar record called Evidence, right, mm-hmm. which really helped me get back to the kind of music that made me want to play in the first place. Mm-hmm. And um, then after that, I remember I had been, uh, or somewhere around that same time, I was doing this uh, live gig down at Seventh Avenue South. And the the band was it was really Mike Maneri's gig, okay. and uh, 
Mike was playing vibes, of course, and Warren Bernhardt was playing uh, keyboards. And it was me, Marcus Miller, and uh, Omar Hakim. Okay. And, you know, we were playing hard every night. And uh, this was at, um, you know, Mike and Randy's Club, 7th Avenue South. Mm -hmm. But I just felt so awful about the way I was playing that I came home, like, depressed every night. And (laughs) and Warren Bernhardt was actually literally my next-door neighbor. And we used to sit there. We'd get home, you know, 2, 3 in the morning. We'd talk till, like, 7, 8 in the morning about... You know, basically being a musician and the ups and downs and sure. and getting depressed about how your playing sucks and <laughs> all this stuff. And um, he really helped me to, to kind of get through that period. I mean, the truth is, after that gig, I put my Telecaster away and never played it again. And that, that was really sort of up to that point. Wow. That was the sound I, I'd been known for. Mm-hmm. So okay. I decided I, I want to go back to something more basic, no more effects, no more nothing. Just can I play anything that makes any musical sense without all of that? Right. So I went back to nothing, just, you know, I got out my 335, you know, stick it in a mm-hmm. old Fender amp and, you know, what do you sound like? What do you play like? Right. And I don't know where I came up with the idea, but I called Anthony Jackson, Steve Jordan, and I, I had played with Manolo only, you know, one time. I used to see him around a lot. Mm-hmm. And I played with him on a, this other Mike Maneri record called Wanderlust, and uh, I just loved, you know, Manolo's spirit, his energy. There's something about him. I, I just said, like, I just want to be around that guy, right. you know, because he has something that I think will be good for me. I yeah. need to be around that kind of energy it's it's an energy i don't understand yeah right so with these little sketches that i had i called you know steve and i said listen i want to try something and i said i I don't even know what it is but let's will you you know give me a shot at and they said sure sure let's let's do it so we started to just jam at steve's loft and we'd make rehearsal tapes and i would go home take the rehearsal tapes, edit together the best parts that we improvised and make uh-huh. pieces of music from it. Wow, that's cool. And so after, I don't know, three or four rehearsals, I called this guy, his name is George Braun, uh, B-R-A-U-N, mm-hmm. uh, who was in part, for all of us, you know, a huge connection to Japan. And I told George, I said, listen, I got something. I don't even know how to describe to you what it is. But I said, I really think we're doing something good. And I said, I wish I could say it's this or it's that. I said, I don't know what it is. But I just know it doesn't sound like anything else. And so he spoke to somebody in Japan who said, okay, let's record it. Uh And so one of the best things about it is when we went in to record, we didn't know what we were doing. And when you listen to the record... Uh, none of the tunes have endings because you know we we didn't have any, and um, that record to me um, it saved my musical life. I mean, whatever yeah. I now have become, it's really because of that that first record that mm-hmm. we did together. Uh, that's uh, it's really one of the most important musical moments in my life. And what's so wonderful to me is that. Um, Having this website, it it puts me in touch with people from all over the world. And when I say that, it sounds like I'm talking about, you know, 
tons of people. It's really not. You know, it, maybe it's a few hundred, few thousand people over right, sure, right. the ten years I've had a website. But the when you, people write you and tell you how much, like that record meant to them, or the body of work of that quartet, uh, it means so much to me. And I, and I know it does to you know Stephen Anthony because. I mean, and a lot of it is from drummers and bass players, and rightfully so, because Stephen Anthony just sounds so unbelievably great on those records. Right. Uh, that, you know, it's one thing, if you're selling a lot of records and you don't hear from anybody, you obviously know, well, you're reaching people. Right. But when you don't sell a lot of records, um, you really don't know. And so... Is sort of the impact the music is having, you know, out there, and like I said, that one of the greatest things about the 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 internet is that, you know, if you make yourself available, people find you and they write you. And um, I hear from it, it's so wonderful. So that that those records that we did together are uh, they they mean a lot to me. Yeah. Hey guys, why don't we take a short break and take a listen to a track Steve selected for us. This is a track uh, called Where's Mumphrey from Steve's 1981 release, Eyewitness. Thank you. 
And that was the track Where's Mumphrey from today's guest, Steve Kahn. A recent guest of ours was uh, Alex Acuna, and you know he played with R- Weather Report, of course, in the late 70s. And you actually played with uh, Joe Zawinul, and I think it was around 86 or so. I think that was the year that Wayne Shorter and Joe decided to disband. And uh, did, did you uh, – you toured with them that year, is that correct? Yes, well, that was – I think was, it was called Weather Update, right? Yeah, that was the sort of the maiden voyage and swan song all in, in one tour with, with – you know, Weather Update, that was it. We were together for seven weeks, and then yeah. – uh, I think, you know, maybe it didn't do what Joe hoped it would do, mm-hmm. and I think he also found that, you know, playing with guys like, uh, you know, maybe Peter and myself and Victor, you know, was too expensive. Uh-huh. So he tried to, uh, you know, cut back the costs, and you know, he changed, he changed bands, and and in truth, he had one vision of what he wanted to do. And especially Peter and I, we were hoping it would be something else. Uh, but when we started, there was no music. There, there was no weather update music, and Joe refused to play sort of some of the great older weather report tunes. I'm really? not just talking about like something like Birdland. I mean, you know, there's so many great compositions sure. in there, and, and he wouldn't play them. Wow, that I didn't and know. And so when we started, uh, you know, he had this idea about us playing along with the, the, the drum machines and all this uh, sequence shit mm-hmm, stuff, mm-hmm. and. <laughs> Uh, it was awful. I mean, we we had a week to rehearse before our first concert at the Vienna Jazz Festival. And believe it or not, we spent, I think, three of the five days just with Joe playing with the drum machine and Peter. Really? Uh, Victor and Bobby Thomas, and we just kind of sat there. <laughs> and, you know, we'd look at our watches and, you know, Joe, maybe we ought to learn a, a tune or something. we got to play in three days. Wow. And, no, 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 we got to get this together now. <laughs> and, and that's my best joke. And, that's great. And wasn't bad. so the, the next thing we know, you know, the gig is like two days away, and we haven't learned a song. Oh my god! And so it was really crazy. And um, hence, uh, I, I, in my opinion, and we used to talk about it all the time. I mean, I, I just thought we sounded like kind of a bad early '70s fusion band, more than like the band that's supposedly following Weather Report. Right. Yeah. So. Um, it, it was really difficult. I mean, it got better as we went along, but uh, it it never was lived up to the potential of what any of us hoped it would be. Right. And I think in the end, uh, you know, when he when he was playing with Scott Henderson, I think that was probably about the best it ever got. And I think Scott was probably you know maybe the perfect guy to have been playing with him because uh, Scott sort of got what Joe was looking for. I mean, Joe had heard me with Eyewitness in Japan, and he was went crazy for it, which I was shocked because, uh, you know, it was so bare bones what we were doing compared to what Weather Report was doing. I mean, the, our texture was so simple. Uh, he loved it. And I thought, I said, well, okay, so he just wants me to be who I am. Right. But it, that really wasn't it. I mean, he he was, you know, he's... In many ways, it's like Miles. You know, they don't know anything about the guitar. They just want a guy to play the blues. Right. That that that's what they're looking for. They they don't articulate that, but that's it. And that's why, in some ways, maybe Robin Ford was more was more well suited to being playing with Miles than guys like Stern or Sco, even though yeah. you know Sco played fantastic. So, uh, but that's what they were looking for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but 
I just want to digress. You mentioned Alex Acuna. You know, <laughs> Alex and I, we've, we've known each other, believe it or not, since probably 71 or 72. And, okay. And I met Alex. You know, Alex is from Peru. Sure. And I met Alex when he was playing at the, uh, he was in the house band, I think, at the El San Juan Hotel in, uh, in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Right. And believe it or not, I was down there playing with Paul Anka. It was one of my, you know, first professional gigs. And I met Alex, and we jammed together. And we stayed, we've been friends, you know, ever since. And, you know, Manolo is from Puerto Rico. A lot of people think Manolo's from Brazil. Brazil, right. But he's not. And, you know, of course, the connection that... And Alex went to Las Vegas. Right, Alex exactly. was living in and playing in Las Vegas right, yeah, way right. before L.A., way before Weather Report. So, you know, it's just fascinating. And what it, it kind of points out is that sometimes, you know, when musicians have this connection to each other, personally and musically, you never, ever lose that. Yeah. I mean, Alex and I have, you know, stayed friendly. You know, we correspond every... I haven't seen him, you know, in ages. Uh, I think the last time I ran into him uh, somewhere... I was playing with David Sanborn, mm-hmm. and he was playing with Al Jarreau. Right. So, but we're really good friends. And but it, believe it or not, it all happened through Paul Anka. Gee, he was in Puerto Rico. Yeah, we recall that Alex at that time. Uh, he was pretty much out of the. He had just studied at the music conservatory over there. And uh, but my goodness. yeah, well, you may know his, the, the 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 totality of his story better <laughs> than I do. But I just know. That's where we met. That's where you hooked yeah, up. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. That's neat. It's a small musical world out there, you know. <laughs> in, in some cases, it's very small, but that, that's a, a really treasured memory. Yeah, yeah. really. Mm-hmm. We've been listening quite a bit, uh, me and um, you know, uh, with Rick too. A wonderful album that you produced, uh, "Got My Mental," and uh, talking about collaborations and that we've just talked about: uh, Steve Jordan, Anthony Jackson, Manolo, and and even Weather Report. In this album, you've basically bringing in two great players that we all know really very well, John Patitucci and, and Jack uh, DeJohnette. And uh, it's just a wonderful project. It's a, a great project, and uh, they're so disciplined. Tell us a little bit about this project. Well, you know what's really funny is, like, sometimes when I look at my body of work, it, it's like, it just seems like I always do things in threes. You know, it's like the, the Columbia stuff, that was three records. <laughs> the original Eyewitness with, with Anthony and Steve, even yeah, though the concept three. went on, there were three records. Right. And now, you know, there are three records, Got My Mental, Greenfield, mm-hmm. and uh, Borrow Time with John and Jack. Right. And I, don't, I have no clue why that is, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's what seems to happen. But um, at, at the time... Um, I, I wanted to, you know, what happens, I mean, this is the part that I, I, I think, you know, people, they, they just see the records, you know, they get the record and, and they, it's good that they oftentimes don't know why the record is what it is. And no matter what you do, whether you have a record deal, whether you don't, somebody, if they're going to release it, and you're not going to do it yourself on CD Baby or something, uh, if there's a company that's going to be involved, they always tell you the same thing. And then they'll say something like, you'll say, well, I'm going to do this record, and, and I want to do it with my trio. And they'll say, well, who's in your trio? And, and, and I'll say, it's, you know, bass player X and, and drummer Z. And I say, oh, well, that sounds really great. Um, but, you know, uh, we'd actually 
you know, we we feel we could do better with the record if you had, you know, more well-known sidemen. And and this is what everybody does to everybody. You know, there's, there's very few artists who say, I'm going to go in and record with whoever I want to. And the company says, okay, that's okay, fine. Uh, so I knew that in order to get a record released by anybody, I had to have, you know, a well-known bass player and drummer. Yeah. So I was looking for a combination that hadn't been used before by, you know, any of my brethren guitar players. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, at that time, nobody had done something with both John and Jack. And so that was, you know, the the idea. And plus, you know, I wanted to do something different. And and so that that's how that came about. And we just happened to have, you know, really good chemistry together and... Uh, and like I said, we've <laughs> we've made uh, three more recordings together, sure, two right. more recordings <laughs> after that together. All right, guys, let's uh, kick back for a few minutes and take a listen to a track from the Got My Mental album. This is a track called Common Mama. Thank you. 
the track Common Mama from today's guest, Steve Kahn. I want to talk about 1984, when you teamed up with uh, Donald Fagan to create uh, an album called uh, That's the Way I Feel Now, which I guess was a tribute to Thelonious Monk and his compositions. And, I, you know, I was really curious about that that particular project and your collaboration mm-hmm. with Fagan at that time. I know you'd worked with Fagan earlier, uh, obviously with Steely Dan, but I was curious about this project in general. Well, it was a very nice thing, um, and really it, it, it happened because of Donald. Um, the, the, the producer of that project, who did several uh, eclectic things, like it was Hal Wilner, who mm-hmm. used to, mm-hmm. uh, was kind of a music producer for Saturday Night Live. And okay. you know, yeah. Hal wanted to you know, sort of have these quirky, offbeat people playing monk tunes, <laughs> which is what the record is. It's an assemblage of, I don't know if there's 12 tunes or more, but um, you know, it's, it's people, you know, you wouldn't expect to be playing monk to. <laughs> right. And, and he, he wanted, you know, Donald to do something because he knew of Donald's love for monk. And so I, uh, Donald apparently said to me, he said, well, listen, if I'm going to do something, uh, I, I, I want to do it with Steve Kahn. 
and because Donald knew my record evidence, which had this um, nine-tune Thelonious Monk medley on it. And so I talked over some songs with Donald, and we decided on uh, Reflections, and basically, I you know, I kind of did an arrangement, and we I worked on it with Donald, and uh, and we went in and did it, and it's kind of you know in the style of the way I did things on um, on evidence, on evidence, uh-huh. and 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 that's what it was. It was it was you know at that time, you know, Donald and I had a, had a really nice uh, personal relationship and musical relationship, uh-huh. and. Uh, <coughs> You know, it was it was it was easy. I mean, yeah. I don't remember much about it. I think we did it pretty fast. I mean, it was just you know in an afternoon. Right. Um, yeah. It was just you know it's very nice. I mean, he. Yeah. I think he has the same sort of uh, feelings for Monk that I do. I mean, I always uh, sort of see something uh, you know very romantic in in a lot of Monk's music, and, mm-hmm. and so and a lot of people just see sort of this. Uh, the, the humor in it sometimes, uh, but I, I see that too. It's, but it's just, uh, I, to me, there's always really a wonderful sense of romance. So, we, we, you know, I, I always try to capture that yeah. one way or another. Mm-hmm. And uh, Donald, I think, sees it the same way. Sure. Mm-hmm. Prior to that project, you had some history with, with Fagan and Becker, and that goes back a few years prior, you know, to this Muck tribute, and you were involved of, in two of my top three favorite albums, which, which are Asia and Gaucho. And I, was just, I just wanted to know if you could give us a little insight on working on these two particular albums and your involvement right. on these classics. Well, um, again, I'm, I'm kind of a, a sort of a, a very minor player in the whole, um, you know, spectrum of, of the Steely Dan uh, catalog. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, uh, I had done a lot of work with Elliot Shiner, the engineer. Sure. And, um, and to tell you the truth, I never owned a Steely Dan record. I didn't have any of them. <laughs> I mean, when I played on, on the, the tune Peg, uh-huh. Asia, I, I did not own a single record of this. I had no. I mean, I'd heard uh, "Do It Again" on the radio, right. and I guess I'd heard "Really, Really in the Years." Yeah, and that's all I knew. Yeah, um, and I didn't really know that. But I, I guess people tell me, you know, well, they, they just love guitar players and all this stuff. Yeah. So, um, Elliot calls you. I mean, he says they're coming to town. They want you to to play on this tune for them. So, you know, I, I go in there and. And the, the tune is Peg, and you know there's um, Rick Morata and, and Don Gold, you know old old friends. So sure, it wasn't, right. you know there wasn't anything uh, awkward about any of it. I mean they they were, you know it's the three of them. It's you know Donald, Gary, and and Walter. Yeah. And you know I mean all the stories you've heard are you know true in in spades. I mean it's yeah uh, it's very strange in in many ways working with them, and you know what. They never spoke. They hardly spoke a word to me the whole time. Uh, all they and what you learn is is that their way of recording, at least then, was all they care about is getting a drum track because yeah. they'll erase everything and everyone else once they have a drum track. So they spent the whole time talking with Rick, and I'm not sure if uh, Chuck Rainey was a bass player. Maybe it was Chuck. I, okay. I don't really remember, but. Um, they just talked with with uh, Rick and, and Chuck. They, they, they never said a word to me. Nothing to Don Grolnick, <laughs> who they'd worked with before. I mean, nothing. Right. And so, at a certain point, I, I was feeling, you know, just so insecure about it because usually people they say something to you. <laughs> and I, I went over to 
in a in a break or something. I went over to Elliot Shiner. I said, I said, listen, this is pretty ridiculous. I said, uh, if this if I suck or something and they hate it, I, I'd rather just go home than go through all this crap for nothing. <laughs> and, and Elliot said, no, no, they they really love what you're doing. Just they don't they never say anything to anybody. So I said, okay, okay. So you know, so I just did. You know, I, I did it. And the funniest thing to me is like, you know, when I listen to now that those the sound effects with the flanger turned up all the way at the yeah. beginning. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to me, it's so juvenile. It's like I can't even believe that I. <laughs> I said, "Well, here, let's try the." I they might have said to me, "You got any interesting sounds?" You know. I said, "Well, here. So, what about this?" And I can't believe that you know they like that. Yeah. And 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 that was it. You know, a lot of people think that um, that I played um, a solo on it and just got erased. But they never asked me to do that, so I never played a solo on that. I mean, uh, and I, all I know is that, you know, eventually, uh, you know, Jay Graydon, what he played, that that's what ended up on that's the record. That's down, yeah. And so then, you know, that record, Asia, came out, and I guess it was, you know, needless to say, a big sensation. And one of the things I learned from it is that when you play on somebody's record, whether you play on one song or all of it, to people, if you're just on... Like I, like I said, I have a very minor role. I did nothing, you know, really nothing. And but when you're on it, then you're on it. You're and on to, it. To average people, you might as well have played on everything. It's like a tattoo, man. Yeah. It, it's, it's a strange. No, it's a strange phenomenon. Wow. That, but that's the way people perceive yeah. things. Right. So yeah, sometimes when young musicians uh, are talking with me and. And they'll be like all sad, and they'll say like, "Oh man, I played on so and so's record, but but I only played on one tune." And I always say to them, "I said it doesn't matter. And I said if if that record does well, You're believe right. me, people will talk to you as if you played on everything." And then yeah. I'll see them years later. You know, you were right about that. That's mm-hmm. neat. <laughs> yeah. No. So anyway, some years later, they're about to do Gaucho, and so this time, you know, they wanted me to do all of it, and so. Basically, they booked four weeks of rhythm section dates, and what they had done was they booked, it was four weeks, each week with a different drummer. And we did a Jeff Procaro week, we did a Rick Murata week, we did a Bernard Purdy week, we did a Chris <laughs> Parker week. Maybe there was a fifth guy, too. But, right. uh, and we played the same songs. <laughs> and I, I swear to you on my life, any version, basically by any of those guys, was fantastic. I, I mean, imagine. everything we did with Jeff Percaro was absolutely fantastic. Everything uh-huh. we did with Rick Murata was absolutely... I mean, if yeah. it was my record, I would have taken any of those tracks. Right. They, those guys played so fantastic. And of course, you know, everybody knows Babylon Sisters with the famous Purdy Shuffle. Right. And right. yeah, one of my favorite stories is like, um, you know, Purdy... We did two takes. Uh, that's my me- memory. I mean, we might have done some run-throughs, but right. we did two takes. Sure. And after the second one, uh, it was a dead of winter. Purdy walks in with his overcoat and his hat on, and he looks at, looks at everybody and goes, Well, fellas, that's it. I'm going home now. And he left. <laughs> and, and he's the only guy I've ever seen do that to them. And, he, and yeah. of course, he was right. I mean, he, yeah. Yeah. you can't play it any better well, than what he did. Well, and, right. You know, they would never let anybody go. I mean, they drove Jeff absolutely fucking crazy. Oops, excuse me. Um, so, but but the famous story, which I've read ten different ways, and 
I disagree with almost every interpretation of it is, mm-hmm. is the story of the song Gaucho. And what happened was, we this was with Jeff, of course, yeah. and, and Anthony Jackson was actually played bass on the original track, the and track. Walter erased him. And, you know, <laughs> we're working, like, all day on this song. And, and I think they, they probably had the song, you know, for years. And they were almost, like, scared to even try it again because they just felt like nobody can play the song. And for us, uh, it was such a, here in New York, it was such a treat to play with Jeff. I mean, he, he was just so fantastic to play with. Right. Uh, I can't, it was one of the great things playing with him. So, mm-hmm. he, you know, we're doing this take after take, and, and, and everyone is, is fantastic. I mean, Jeff is playing just totally great every, every single time. And, you know, by then, you know, we knew the song inside and out. <laughs> and I don't know what the heck was with Donald and Walter and Gary. And eventually, Donald and Walter throw up their hands. They say, we're going home. We're never going to get this. Song. And this, the five of us, I think it was, you know, Jeff, uh, Anthony, myself, Don Grolnick, and Paul Griffin uh, playing a, a second keyboard. And we're sitting out in the control. We're stunned. We're going like, they must be crazy. We're, we're like this close. We've got it. So what happened was we sort of had a little meeting together with the five of us, the, the, the musicians, yeah. and I went in the control room and I said to Gary, I said, look, it, you can tell me, you know, to just pack up and go home. I said, but I'm telling you, we've got this. We can play this tune. This is, this is absurd. He said, I don't care about those two guys. I said, let us try. If you think it stinks, we'll all go home. <laughs> so you know, Donald and Walter are gone. So... We go back out, and we start doing it. And, you know, Gary isn't pushing the... We did a couple takes, and then he does the usual kind of crazy stuff that he does. He says, okay, that's fantastic. And he says, let's just get the four bars that are over here. And we'd look at him like... But we knew better enough not to argue with him. say, okay, is that what you want? We'll do it. And we saw him, you know, call Donald at home and... You know, he said, yeah, I, I was told by the assistant, he says, yeah, he said, he told Donald, he said, they're doing it, it's fan- it's incredible, they've got it. And uh, and so that's how that's how it ended up happening. <laughs> that's and, great. Um, but it's really because, you know, the musicians cared enough to make it, to go the extra mile for it. Right. I've seen stories where Gary says he told us, this is, this is BS. <laughs> Uh, and I've seen other stories where, but, but that's, you know, unless I've got, uh, you know, some kind of mental disease. I mean, that's what happened. Wow. And, um, you know, the sad part is that, you know, Anthony got erased from it. But, but Anthony was, his vibe, you know, is in there. Yeah. But but the other part, the great part of the story is there there are uh, four tunes, you know, all these crazy Steely Dan fan sites. Uh, they know about them. They're, they're four tunes that never got finished. Uh-huh. And uh, one is this, the famous one called Second Arrangement, which is a tune. It's even There's even a, uh, a tape cassette that you can find at YouTube. Uh, that's the famous one that the assistant engineer accidentally erased it. Wow. Right, and, right. Uh, so that never got finished. And then we did, there's a tune called um, I Can't Write Home About You, which was great. And then there's another one called uh, Heartbreak Souvenir, which was great. 
And the last one was called Coolie Baba, which was also great. Right. And uh, I think Coolie Baba was eventually... Rec- I think Manhattan Transfer did a version of it. But Interesting. These tunes were amazingly great, and uh, but they never finished them. And, and wow. the Gaucho's almost done, and Donald, I, I, I don't know what happened. I think we, you know, we were more friendly at the time, you know, like even like, you know, to get together once in a bloom and have lunch or something. Yeah. And, you know, we, we were speaking on the phone, and he said, um, he said, you know, we just, we're a tune short. We just can't finish this damn thing. And I said, I said to him, by then I had enough confidence that I could talk to him like a, a person. Right. And, and, I, and I said, you know, you've got a great track. I said, you're just not paying attention to it. He says, what are you talking about? I said, you go back and you listen to uh, a version of Heartbreak Souvenir with Purdy. And he says, I'm telling you, you have one of the great tracks, you know, drum tracks of all time. I mean, Purdy, he gave it to you. It's, it's there. And so a few days go by, and Donald calls me. He says, "You're absolutely right." He says, "It's it's unbelievable." And I said, "So?" And he says, "Yeah, but it's too hard to sing, so I, I don't want to do it." Oh no! I say, I say to myself, oh. "This guy is out of his." Mind. <laughs> <laughs> so wow. I, you know, I don't think we'll ever hear any of those things. Uh. But uh, those four tracks, I think uh, that one was with Purdy. The great track to me of Coolie Baba was with Rick Murata, and they, I think the other two were with Jeff. Um, Amazing. And uh, it's funny. I mean, I don't. I mean, these stories maybe make it sound more warm and fuzzy, but in truth, I mean, I don't have great things to say about any of it. I mean, the process was unbelievably wasteful to me. I mean, what they would spend in a day, I could have made three records for that. <laughs> right, uh, exactly. And that's, you know, it doesn't get upsetting until you, like I say, if you've paid for your own records and you realize how precious every dime is you're spending out of your own pocket and right. you see what other people just waste, uh, it, it's very upsetting. Hmm. So, uh, but... You know, I'm happy people like those records. <laughs> but they have very little to do with me. That's neat. Yeah. I, I didn't, you know. Oh, here's a funny story. I'm, this is another part of it. Um, the last thing they finished, I was the last overdub on that record on um, uh, Third World Man. Okay. And I mm-hmm. come into the studio, and I they put up this track, and I, I go, oh, my God. You know, I'm listening to Donald singing and Larry's guitar playing, Larry Carlton. I said, what is this? And he says to me, oh, we did this at the same time as Asia, but it wasn't good enough to be on Asia. I said, you guys are really sick. I said, this is so fantastic. <laughs> oh, this is yeah. not good enough to have been on Asia? I said, oh, my, my God. God this- Third world man. And, and so I said, well, I said, well, what do you expect me to do? I said, this is some of the best guitar yeah. playing, you know, on a song ever in my life. I said, yeah. I'm, what am I? He says, well, there's some little flaws, and we want you to kind of beef it up and fix it. And I, and I said, oh, God. I said, you're asking me to... So uh, I, I sort of, you know, tried to do what they asked me to do. And uh, one of the things, I, I didn't want to get in the way of anything Larry had played. So I said, well, you know, I think a steel string acoustic would blend in really nicely, might give you some of what you're looking for. And so they let me do that, but they still made me do some, you know, sort of power chord stuff. I don't remember what it was, but, but that just shows you how crazy it was. That was, <laughs> that, you know, that was not, quote unquote, a gaucho tune. That that was, that yeah. was, 
you know, from, in uh, Asia however too. many years before Asia was. Right. I've thought about that before, too, because I, I, I always thought that song sounded like it might have, it was more from the Asia era. Well, that's where it's from. Yeah, wow. that's, that's, I, didn't, I didn't realize that's that. That's a great story. Thanks. Aren't you happy that I'm a guy that doesn't give one-word answers? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, do we dig it. Well, you know, those it. are the kind of answers we want. Yeah, actually. this is great. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure our you know fans of the show are digging no this too. Doubt they are. Hey guys, let's uh, take another short break and check out a track from Steve's 2007 release called "Borrowed Time," and this is a track called "I Mean You."
That was the track I Mean You from our guest today, Steve Kahn. Japan's uh, Jazz Life magazine, I guess, uh, selected you along with uh, other guitar legends such as you know John McLaughlin and Pat Metheny, Wes Montgomery, right. John Schofield. Uh, Django Reinhardt is one of the 22 all-time greatest jazz guitarists. And, I mean, 
Well, that was in the 90s. Maybe they've gotten up to 30 now. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, but still, I mean, that's uh, what an honor. I mean, to be, you know, to be uh, looked upon in, in, with, in that realm with, with mm-hmm. some of those, some of the other great guitarists. No doubt. Um, yeah, obviously, I mean, anything like that is, is uh, you know, is, is a huge yeah. uh, honor. You know, you, it's, it's really hard to see, to put your own, you know, body of work in, into perspective, especially like I said, I mean, I've always, I still feel like it today. I mean, I'm really a small artist. I, I mean, I, in many ways, somebody said, "Well, if you had the career you you hoped you would have," and and uh, on on one level, I would say, "Well, it's exceeded what I hoped," because I never thought I'd really be you know be able to make records of my own or anything like that. But on the other side. It's also, you know, a huge disappointment because I've never really been able to tour like I would like to. Right. So right. it's a combination, sort of, of you know, obviously, you know, the bitter and the sweet. Yeah. And um, but you know, when somebody independent of of you, uh, it feels that your your body of work has some significance. Uh, you know, it's very very nice. I mean. Uh, I don't think, I mean, if you talk to anybody, I mean, nobody plays this kind of music to uh, to win awards or to, I mean, mm-hmm. you play right. it because you, right. you love it. I mean, sure. And anybody who puts any importance on that stuff is uh, should be doing something else. You're right. But uh, obviously when something like that happens, you know, it's very nice because uh, you never expect any of that stuff. Is being honored in this way how you hope to be remembered as a musician or, or is it something else for you? Wow, it's it's so hard to say. I mean, you know, when you're sitting here now, and you know, I just had my 63rd birthday, and yeah. in many ways, you know, you, when you look at the number, you go 63. God, it's ancient, you know. But I mean, I still feel like a little kid inside. My enthusiasm <laughs> about music is it's no different than it ever was. I mean, mm-hmm. my I think a lot of my foolish illusions have been beaten out of me a long time ago. So I, I'm not a starry-eyed kid in that way. But, but my love for playing and my energy for it, to me, feels the same. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I think, I, I get, like we were talking about before about um, the website and, and getting, um, you know, fan emails from people. I think just that you you realize that to, you know, a certain group of people, certain amount of people that really feel like the recordings that, that I did, um, you know, like I said, especially the stuff from Eyewitness to the Present, has great meaning for them in, in terms of their concept about how how to go about making music mm-hmm. with your bandmates. Uh, yeah. Those kinds of things, that means, that means a, a lot to me yeah. because... If people, you know, oftentimes, like, what's so funny about it is I get so much mail from drummers and bass players because uh, they love the way drummers and bass players have played on my recordings. And, so, and sometimes, okay. like, I never look at it as, well, well what about me? You know, I don't, I don't ever <laughs> think about that. I mean, yeah. I realize that if I'm doing something that creates this environment that enables bass players and drummers to feel free enough to create the things that that they have created, then I must be doing something right. Right. And so if that 
say is how people remember me, then I mean I'd I'd be thrilled with that. Yeah. So yeah. it it's um it it's hard to see. You know, sometimes I like I said I go through times where I feel um I, I guess the most the word that captures the uh, the existential pain of it all the best is irrelevant. Where mm-hmm. you 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 feel like nobody's listening, nobody's paying attention, mm-hmm. and uh, you know you're not worth anything. Mm. Uh, believe me, I, I, I f- I've gone through periods where I feel that and mm-hmm. profoundly, but uh-huh. then, you know, that'll sort of change and you at least, uh, well, somebody, somebody's listening. Yeah. So you never know. I mean, it, it, it's really funny. If you look at like two of the greatest players in the, in the genre, uh, Jim Hall and Joe Henderson, mm-hmm. those two guys, you know, went through long periods of time where nobody paid any attention to them at all. And then, somehow, later in their careers, it was all of a sudden like people discovered Jim Hall and Joe Henderson, <laughs> and suddenly they had a career again. They could go out and wow. tour and do things. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, it, it's really... Now, why that? I, I, I can't explain that. Right. I, you know, I mean, anybody who knows anything, you know, reveres both of them. Yeah. But but that happened to both of them. I mean, they were, at, you know, I guess the, 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 the famous little expression, you know, toiling in obscurity. But yeah. that was really the truth. And uh, things like that happen. I, I, I don't know why. I mean, I wouldn't say that's happened to me at all. Because if that had happened to me, I'd be out there, you know, touring all the time. Right, but yeah. uh, jazz is really funny that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Don't ask me to explain any of that. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of touring, though, how often do you tour? Uh, now, more infrequently than ever. And, yeah. and some of that is not because uh, I don't want to. I mean, a lot of people say, well, you know, why don't you, why aren't you out there, you know? And, uh, and when you try to explain it to them, uh, you know, sometimes people, they don't want to believe it. But, you know, the, the truth is, is like, I went through a period where I was really hitting it hard and, and playing a, a lot of trio gigs around. Mm-hmm. But it got to a point where I arrived at a moment where I just looked at what was coming in and what was going out, and I just said, how much am I willing to lose mm-hmm. to just go out and play, yeah. and to go to Boston to play? And, and when you mm-hmm. look at the finances of yeah. it and realize that you're going to lose between you know a thousand to maybe fifteen hundred dollars or more every night you're playing how much can you do that exactly so that's that's my reality i mean i'm not saying that's everybody's reality Mm -hmm. uh but that's my reality Mm -hmm. and so i decided that if i'm going to lose money i'd rather spend it making a recording yeah at least that lives you know cosmically speaking you know lives forever Mm -hmm. right Whereas a gig, I mean, even though, you know, in, in this day and age, you know, people uh, immortalize gigs you wouldn't even want them to, you know, to immortalize <laughs> by uh, making recordings on their uh, yeah. phones and their camcorders right. and stuff. And right. next thing you know, things are up at YouTube that you don't want to be up there. Yeah. Um, so life has become really crazy. But But between that reality and, you know, that everything in our our world uh you know people don't necessarily think about how it affects musicians but you know since 911 the the world for the traveling musician 
has gotten worse and worse and worse. And it's not just the, you know, you look at uh, all the search stuff that, that has to go on for security, but, like, for example, I have an equipment trunk that houses my amp head, my pedals, uh, my, my junk. Right. And so it weighs exactly 70 pounds. And prior to 9-11, mm-hmm. the rule for the airlines was, you, you know, you can have two suitcases that weigh 70 pounds. Mm-hmm. And so sometime not so long after there, you know, maybe after a different incident, you know, there have been all these other, not necessarily the shoe bomber, but something, yeah. all the weights go down to 50 pounds. Right. So now, believe me, in that case, that's the bare minimum that I need to sound like me if I go somewhere. Sure. And everywhere I go, I pick up speakers. I don't, I can't travel with my speakers. So I'm already doing that. Every drummer now travels, you know, and basically faces drums du jour. You know, <laughs> you can write the club and say, I want a set of uh, Yamaha drums with a 14-inch tom-tom and a 16-inch. Right. But you're not necessarily going to get it. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's the reality for the yeah. traveling music. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, even, I, I think the only guy in the, in, the, in, in the guitar, the brotherhood of the guitar, who is really traveling with all his own gear is Pat Metheny. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is, is picking up something. Mm-hmm. I think Sko, you know, probably picks up amps somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the way the things are with the airlines, I mean, you don't even know if they're going to let you take your guitar and put it in the overhead anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's it's really awful. It's and, really bad. And and I know people, you know, probably aren't going to go with the poor musicians because everybody's worried about, you know, a plane getting uh, blown up or something. But uh, it makes it really hard. So you know, yeah. oftentimes, like when you see musicians playing in another city other than their hometown, uh, people are really lucky to be seeing them because the effort that it took them to get there is, you know, yeah. magnified a thousandfold from, from what it was in another time in, yeah. in the history of the planet, let alone the U.S. That's interesting. That's really hard. It's, it's a new reality, yeah. yeah yes, it, it's just very, very and it, it doesn't get any, I don't see any signs of it, you know, getting any better. Yeah, you're right. Um, because the policies are so inconsistent. You, you go right. on one airline and, and they're making you sweat bullets about if you can just take your guitar on the plane with you. And then another one, it's like the old days, someone would be, oh, 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 no problem, let me put it in the closet up here in first class. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the old days, any, you know, it was easy. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, like when we used to tour in the 70s, we, you know, we had everything, a full set of drums, you know, all the little cases, everything, <laughs> and you'd pull up to the, you know, of course we're always late, you know, the... <laughs> up in the rent a car, up to the the skycaps, yeah. And you slip the guy, you know, fifty bucks, and you say, "Get you know, can you get all this in place?" He says, "Sure, no problem." And the guy comes up to you while you're at the counter, gives you you know whatever thirty luggage tags, and the stuff goes goes on the plane. Yeah. Right. And almost never excess baggage, just for slipping a guy fifty bucks. Right. And you can imagine trying to do that now. I mean, yeah. forget it. He'll so, arrest you. <laughs> Everything is, it's just, the world is, is upside down. Yeah, it is. Well, Steve, uh, before we go, I've just got one more question for you, and that's... Uh, just one looking at, more? Just looking at the... <laughs> one more. 
I think you've answered everything. <laughs> oh, <it's>, <laughs> but, <laughs> and I uh, haven't lost my sense of humor. <laughs> no, man. <laughs> but just I was just kind of looking ahead to this year, 2010, and, and what it holds for you. What kind of uh, what other projects do you have working, you know, cooking up, and uh, anything else that might be going on? Well, uh, I'm actually happy to say <laughs> something is happening uh, after. Um, the release of uh, Borrowed Time and then and then the, the suitcase yeah. mm-hmm. came out, which was really, you know, kind of a, a found release because I, you know, I, I just had no idea that would ever get released. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but the, the stories in the liner notes of that recording. But uh, I just went through a, a period, uh, um, you know, normally the way I sort of function is that normally, like, say, when I would be recording something like Borrowed Time, in my mind, I already know what I want to do next. Mm-hmm. It's, I see it, you mm-hmm. know. But after that, and after sort of doing the uh, post-production on what became the suitcase, mm-hmm. I couldn't see anything. Not because I don't know what's left to do. It's just I don't know what to do. I, and mm-hmm. I also know I'm not going to get any help from anywhere. I, I'm not, you know, no, no record companies are pounding in my door saying, oh, we want to... We we got to sign you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just went. Although I didn't realize that, I just went through this period where uh, I just was, I guess, just really depressed about my situation. I didn't, I didn't know where to go or anything. And mm-hmm. you know, there's there. I guess there's obviously you know lots of levels of being depressed. I mean, there's the kind where you close the bedroom door, turn off all the lights, uh, and eat haagen for uh, two years, and, and you never come out again. Uh, obviously, it wasn't like that. I mean, I was functioning and, and doing things, but I couldn't find, you know, a direction in music that, that I, I wanted to go after. Sure, and right, yeah. I, that I really never had an experience before. I've had times where I feel like I can't write, I don't hear anything, those kind of things. I mean, and, you know, you, you come out of that. And honestly, I, I don't know what happened, but in March of this year, uh, you know, I was still in the same place. And, and an, old, uh, an old girlfriend of mine, uh, actually, you know, kind of an old sort of love that briefly floated through my life uh, 30 years ago mm-hmm. uh out of nowhere she she contacted me and, and we just started talking and um she didn't live in new york uh she lives in, in colorado and and um i don't know what happened but the energy from our conversations just about life and work and everything sure the next thing i knew i started sitting down and writing and putting together things. And, and as I sit here now, mm-hmm. uh, I've got um, seven pieces of music done. That's great. And uh, there's two more that I that I feel like... Uh, one, I, I know I definitely have to finish. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to record eight pieces of music. Mm-hmm. and um, But then there's another idea I have, and I, I might just, you know, do that too. But my hope is that I'm done with this phase of the process by the end of this month. Then I'm going to call uh, Rob Mounsey's wife, Debbie, who's Mm -hmm. a contractor for me, meaning that I pay her. She makes all the phone calls, does all the negotiating with the musicians. I I don't want to talk to musicians about money and their time. I I just want Debbie to tell me, okay, Steve, we're going to rehearse here on this date. 
I said, great, I'll be ready. And they say, you're recording on these two dates, and here they are. That's all I want to know. <laughs> I, I don't, the rest of it I don't, I don't want to know anything about. So when I'm ready to, to make the phone call to her, uh, I hope, my hope is that I'll be recording something new uh, between September and November, depending on the guy's schedule, mm-hmm. and that next year uh, there'll be a release. Now, how that will happen, uh, I have no idea. Wow. Uh, all I know is, you know, I'll pay the bills to get this done and packaged, and hopefully somebody will pick it up and I won't have to be a record company, yeah, right. which is the, the last thing uh, I want to be. But yeah. I, I, I really feel really lucky right now That's that good. I That's pulled myself feeling. out of this uh-huh. uh, because... Uh, boy, that uh, was a bad. It was a bad period of time. We'll keep in touch, and when you yes. get closer to the, you know, the release, uh, maybe we can have you back on the show to talk about it. No doubt. No, terrific. That'll Absolutely. that'll be great. Yeah. And, uh, and yes, I mean, uh, I'm sure you know we'll be in touch anyway. And I'll, you know, when I when I know that I'm actually going in to actually record it, I, uh-huh. you know, you'll know. Very good. Well, we'll keep uh, we'll keep our fans updated and Absolutely. Uh, let them know what's happening. Good. Thanks so much. Well, Steve, thanks so much for joining us on Inside Music Cast. This thank, has been great. Thank you, Steve. Was, it was really fun, and uh, sorry for all the long-winded answers. <laughs> no, but, uh, no, that's that's what we like. It's no problem. And, and if I defamed anybody in the process, I, <laughs> oh, please no. forgive me, everyone. <laughs> well, we had a great time. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. All right, take care. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Steve Kahn for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Join us again on June 7th as Inside Music Cast welcomes Kansas drummer Phil Ehart. Also, very special thanks to Inside Music Cast correspondents Scott Gross, Brian Pearson, Kim Riley, Max Zape, and Uwe Reif. And please visit our website at InsideMusicCast.com, where you can catch up on all our past interviews, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out additional bonus content. Inside Music Cast is also on Facebook, where you can become a fan and join in on music conversation with Inside Music Cast listeners from around the world. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast.